This is Sir Grat Show. I am back here with an episode number 49. And uh, this is just one uh, from the milestone uh, 50 episodes. And we are really coming up onto something pretty exceptional for me personally and for this whole show. Uh, I'm really excited to get that far. And today I had an opportunity to interview Craig O'Neill, who is the CEO of a fintech company based in Toronto called VersaPay. Uh, he's been a CEO for seven years since 2013, and he was a co-founder and the CEO of a company back in 2000 called XEYEXI. Hopefully I'm pronouncing that right. What is VersaPay? It's a fintech company that changes the way thousands upon thousands of companies do business together by reinventing the accounts receivable process. And it could be a little bit boring, but I think Craig explains it very, very well. And uh, we are also diving into some really cool stuff about Craig's mindset, how he thinks, how he, what are some of the lessons that he learned over a couple of decades of running the business and some of the biggest regrets, failures, successes that he had, how he manages his time, what are his routines, and some of the questions that he asks himself, how he learned to focus more on managing his time and saying no to things. And this is a slightly different format that directly speaks to the heart of the show that to extract the routines, the tactics, the strategies that my guests are using to achieve the high performance and double down on their superpower, uh, whatever the unique thing is they have. And we only do it for one reason, to help you apply that in your life and see if that works for you and make them a very, very, very practical. I don't really want to spend too much time on the theory with this note, here's Craig O'Neill. Craig, thank you so much for joining me here on the show. My pleasure, Sergey. So you've been uh, at VersaPay for seven years now. You've been recently uh, acquired by the private equity firm in Boston. Is it change? Does it actually change anything on your team or for the work that you're doing immediately? Yeah, it, it, it should. We expect it to have an immediate effect. Um, we're actually, to be clear, the transaction is being voted on by shareholders because we're a public company, um, being voted on on February 14th, Valentine's Day. So hopefully we get a Valentine's Day present and it gets nice. approved. Uh, the deal would close on the 21st. And we've already done a fair bit of planning. So really the following week, we'll start to make, I think, some exciting changes as we as we look forward and grow the company. So for people who are not from finance and who are not very familiar with accounts receivable, what does VersaPay do? Sure, yeah. Um, you know, it's surprising. When you think about life as a, as a consumer buying products, now we typically don't get to buy on credit sometimes, but typically when you show up and you buy something, you pay for it when you pick up the product. Or if you buy on Amazon, you pay when you order. Between businesses, of course, um, most businesses buy on credit. So they'll purchase a product or a service. They'll get a bill or an invoice, and they'll pay it some number of days later. Um, so the act of a supplier collecting on outstanding invoices is called accounts receivable. And what's really surprising about accounts receivable is it really hasn't changed in, I kind of say, forever. It's a very manual process. Companies send a bill. They wait for the term, which might be 30 days or 60 days, and then they follow up manually. And, and we always say the biggest innovation before us, the biggest innovation in AR has been emailing an invoice instead of mailing an invoice, although there's mm -hmm. still a lot of invoices that get mailed. So we're really just about taking that manual and paper-based or quasi-paper-based process and turning it into an online 
collaborative process because when you think about it, it's about two companies working together. So we make it easy to communicate online. If there's questions or issues about an invoice, uh, if there's just simply maybe some confusion over the invoice or maybe they've lost track of the invoice, everything is automated and done online and payment is online. And then the solution is integrated right into our client who is a supplier into their accounting system or ERP system so that all the information about payments that were received and what's being paid flows right back automatically into the accounting system. So we summarize that by saying, mm -hmm. we automate the whole AR process and we let you focus as individuals in the AR department on your customers who either cannot pay or will not pay. And that, that's where you can, as a human being, really add value to the business transaction. All right. the other stuff just kind of happens automatically. Mm. Right, that, that, makes, that makes a lot of sense. What are you, um, I mean, you've been recently, you're still in the process of the acquisition. What are some of the exciting things that are happening for you personally right now? Yeah, well, I'm excited about this change. It's something that um, I thought actually might happen sooner. I joined the company, as you said, about six and a half years ago. We were a public company. I was hired to really help the company complete a pivot that they'd been thinking about for some period of time. Verspay was a payments business, electronic payments business had discovered this opportunity in AR automation, very, very underserved and massive market. Mm -hmm. um, and so they hired me to say, hey, can we build a platform that will do this? And we wanna head down that direction. We think it's the way the company should go. So essentially we became very quickly, and I sort of warned my board of this when they, mm -hmm. when they hired me, uh, actually before they hired me, that I would want to sell off the original business, the payments business, and we would end up being a public company uh, building a software product and essentially have no revenue. In other words, I call it will be a kind of a software startup on steroids. And that's not a, that's kind of being a square peg in a round hole as a public right. company. Uh, and so we did that, it's gone well, but every quarter I'm out reminding shareholders why we're burning cash, why we're investing heavily in sales and marketing and R&D. Yes, revenues are growing quickly, but our expenses mm -hmm. are still bigger than our revenues. So always reminding the, the market of that. And really, again, we're kind of a square peg in a round hole. Now, as a private company that's backed by a, a U.S. private equity firm that gets what we're doing and wants us to invest in sales and marketing and R&D, mm -hmm. we can start to really focus on doing that and not be distracted by explaining it to investors, but actually doing it and doing it well. So I'm excited and that the the noise and overhead of communicating with the public market will be set aside for the time being. Hopefully things go well and we may go public again at some point. But I can really focus on what I love, which is building great product and serving customers well and winning more and more and more customers. Obviously makes a huge difference for you and not to focus too much on uh, on external side of things. What, uh, Craig, what drew, drew you to management? You've been a co-founder, you've been the CEO, I believe in, of another company uh, in 2000s. And then yeah. uh, now you're with VersaPay for quite a while. Why management? Why being in this role where you're at? Yeah, well, you know, I love building things. So I would always characterize myself as a product-oriented CEO, which again speaks to I love to build things. I love to build products. But I love to build teams and organizations as well. And uh, prior to coming to VersaPay, I had built a company and sold it to a, a Swiss company. And the company was a large company. It was doing well. I had a great job. They paid me well. It was, frankly, it was a relatively easy job. I was traveling all over the world, and there was a lot of great to be said about the job. But I realized I missed the the sort of the whole dynamic of building something, bootstrapping, and building something up from the ground up. 
And so I actually stepped back from that job left there and, and with the plan of starting something brand new. And then, of course, ran across this hybrid situation in Versapay, which was a public company mm -hmm. that wanted to start something brand new. So I just love that idea of starting something new, building it from taking it from a vision stage to reality to building a team around it with passion and purpose and excitement about achieving a big goal and then pursuing that goal. So that's really what we're doing at Versapay. It's kind of what I've done through my through my career a few times over. Right. And you, you still see Versapace, something you'll be around for a while, where there's still a challenge to make that vision happen. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we, we have, we're probably one of three leaders in the space in the US and Canada. So we're kind of focused in North America right now. And I think collectively, the three of us, two US companies and, and us Canadian, but now becoming US owned, we probably collectively have tackled 0.01% of the market. So that's huge huge amount multiple billions of dollars of annual revenue opportunity that's untouched right now um and it's not just about the revenue it's about changing right. people's lives and changing their businesses but if you measure it by revenue it's really an untouched market so yeah we're really just getting started mm. and it, i believe uh in one of the interviews you did mention or it might have been your presentation uh, a couple of years ago you mentioned it was the opportunity was around five to six billion dollars correct yeah something like and we characterize that as the mid-market. Um, and mid-market, we sort of talk about businesses that do about 50 million in revenue to about a billion dollars in revenue every year. So just the mid-market was about a five to $6 billion annual revenue mm -hmm. opportunity. That leaves out, of course, smaller companies and it leaves out enterprise companies. And over the last couple of years, we've been really successful uh, winning and serving enterprise mm -hmm. companies. We've got a couple of opportunities now with large partners to start to serve small businesses. So if you add those two ends of the market, it probably triples that that market size. So well over 10 billion, maybe $15 billion a year. And that's just the US, by the way. That's not worldwide. Right. Doesn't even include Canada, that's, that's the US. So very, very big market opportunity. Does sound very, very exciting. Let me ask you this. What is the, what, what do people never ask you that you wish they did? That's a great question. So um, certainly when I think about customers, uh, they actually seldom ask us, you know, what is AR automation because they're not looking for it. So we're looking forward to the day when this becomes so prevalent in the market, the awareness is so, so high that people start asking, what is AR automation? How do I do that as well as my peers? We don't get that question. Um, so I'm looking forward to hearing that question a whole lot more from customers. We're beginning to see signs of that, but it's still kind of early days. Um, the other question probably, if I think about it, not from a customer perspective, but just yeah. generally from people, when I talk to, you know, yourself or friends or, or colleagues, um, you know, I seldom hear the question I think is so important, which is, you know, how do you define success? What's important to, to build a great company or to build a great organization? What's really important? Mm -hmm. You know, how do you define success? What, what do you see as being a positive outcome? I think we all just assume it's growth and profit and revenue, but I think there's a lot more to it than that. So I wish that question got asked a lot more often. How do you define it? What does that look like in your in your world? Yeah, and this, it, it probably will sound a little old fashioned. I remember actually my very first day at VersaBase speaking to the team at the time and saying, I'm a little bit old fashioned. I see my job as, as the CEO of a company um, to, to really be serious about, you know, building something great as an organization but to me, great as an organization means you've got employees that love to be part of what we're doing. So they kind of see a vision and they're excited about the vision. They mm -hmm. want to be part of it. 
they wake, wake up in the morning excited to come to work, not just because they get paid well, but they love what they do and they're excited about the impact they're having. Um, customers who we serve, you know, should say, I'm so glad I signed up with this organization, in our case, VersaPay, but whoever it is, we made the right choice. They care about us. They do what they say. They're committed to our success. And obviously they have to be successful as well, but they're committed to our success. Mm -hmm. um, and then of course, ownership, whether that's in a public company or a single owner, what have you, um, you know, we're fiscally responsible, we're um, fiduciary responsible, uh, we're doing the right things to, to make their investment worthwhile. So in other words, really thinking about the major constituents of an organization in the case of a corporation and, um, and caring about and, and striving for pursuing a good outcome for all three of them, which is partly about money, but it's, it's about yeah. so much more than money. And it's a continuous, obviously there's, there's often trade-offs between those constituents. So it's managing those constituents well. So at the end of the day, you've got three very, very happy um, groups of people um, to be part of the organization. I think if you can find that dynamic, it's easier said than done, but you right. can you can really build something great when you do that. Finding the balance between the three. Yes, yeah. What is your superpower? Something that you have, other people don't have, uh, something that you're, I, I'll say leverage. Yeah. I know it's probably the dark word, but <laughs> let's go with that. <laughs> yeah, gee, I, I, what would it be one thing? Well, I guess, um, could I could I give you two? Not that I've got Please. superpowers to say, but probably two things that I think I try and be good at. So, so one is I've been in software my whole career, so I, I'm I'm pretty good at seeing a problem and and solving it with software in a way that customers will often say, ah, didn't think of that, but now that you show me, that's better than what I was thinking of. So mm -hmm. pretty good at that. So that's that's helpful in our business. Um, and then the other thing I try to, to do well, um, and I've been learning slowly over the years, is is to provide what I call inspirational leadership, leadership that does sort of set a tone and a vision that gets people excited. So, you know, we're not just coming to work in the morning to get a paycheck, but we love what we do. And we're excited to, um, in our case, take the folks that are in AR uh, and AP of, of our customers, customers that have a lot of drudgery in their lives and kind of get rid of all that and let them do more important work and and feel more just that their work is more valuable um and so that kind of leadership that gets us all rallied around something more inspirational is something that i i try hard to do and mm -hmm. i think i've learned over the years to to be reasonably good at that right are there any uh tools that you use to help with that any techniques that you use with uh, maybe prioritizing or um, planning to ha to help you make this vision or like apply this vision and, and make it into the reality. Anything that, that you're using like on a day-to-day -day basis, more like the practical things. Yeah, well, you know, I, I learned a long time ago. I don't recall who said it to me, but somebody said to me, it was probably a professor at school. I, I was in mm -hmm. computer science in, uh, in college and university. And I remember somebody saying to me that, that there was a, a misconception that, um, that an idea or a product was one idea, where in fact it was actually kind of thousands of ideas and maybe tens of thousands of, or millions of ideas of things not to do and thousands of things to do to really create a, a, a full idea. Um, and so, so I really believe that. There's lots of nuances and layers to building out a product. 
And therefore, it's kind of similar with a vision. It's one thing to stand on a soapbox and articulate a vision in five minutes, but it needs to be repeated and layered and articulated in a way that people really can start to visualize them. So it comes down to kind of a, a communication framework. Um, that's for, for an organization, organization, for me, having that kind of framework that really I think about every day, um, who have I spoken with, at what layers, what levels of detail have mm -hmm. we talked about this? What does that mean for what we're doing uh, this year, this quarter, and this week, team by team by team? Um, so that's kind of a tool, kind of a communication framework or tool that I use all the time. So it, yes, there is a headline vision, but there's sort of layers of that that are adapted to each team. So at any given time, if we do our job well, they know how they fit into the, the bigger picture and they understand what the piece that they're working on, how that contributes to the overall vision quite clearly. So that's certainly kind of, a, if you will, a tool or framework that I, I think about every day and, and work on all the time. Any biggest regrets that uh, you'd be willing to share? <laughs> um, you know, I'm, I'm really, I'm thankful that I don't have any huge regrets. Um, I, 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 could, I have some theories as to why that is, but probably if I looked over my career, right now at VersaPay, I've got one small regret. Um, and we've made the most of it at the very beginning uh, of me coming to the company. The company had been attempting to do this pivot and had written some software. We had to make the call, do we just kill all of it and start fresh or do we try and reuse what we can? And we made the decision, the latter decision. I've learned over the years, it's, it's seldom a good idea to do a complete rewrite. And in this particular case, over a bit of time, maybe over a year and a half or so, we kind of figured out a complete rewrite would have been the better thing to do. But we, we fixed and we incrementally sort of rewrote what we had. So that was a, a smallish regret. Probably the other slightly bigger regret I had is, if I think back prior to VersaPay, mm -hmm. um, the company I mentioned that I sold to a Swiss company, I had planned to do the usual thing, maybe stay on a couple of years and then move on and do something else. And big company, uh, our part of, of the company, which had been the, the firm that I had been had founded and I was part of the bigger entity, was doing very well. And when I announced to my boss, who was the CEO, I was going to leave probably in six months, I wanted to have a transition that was you know, helpful and not going to cause the company any harm. Um, he didn't want me to go. We ended up negotiating a, a year, but then I, we did that four more times. So I stayed for five years instead of the mm -hmm. one and a half or two. And, uh, it was a great job. I mentioned earlier, I traveled a lot. It was relatively easy, but in retrospect, when I look back, I, I kind of wish that I had spent the two and then moved on to do what I love, which is building things. So that's probably over my career, the biggest regret, which is not that bad. I'm, I'm thankful to say, but that would be likely the, the regret just should have stuck with what I loved instead of, um, you know, part of the motivation was I wanted to help. Part mm -hmm. of it was, you know, it was good money. That's never a good motivation to do something. Um, so I should have just said, you know what, I want to help, but let's do this over six or nine months and then I'll move on and do something that I love to do. That's very interesting. And with this, what you just said, advice to the 30 year old self would you i mean you did you just shared one that is really really big i think doing what you love and like like applying that as cliche as it sounds yeah anything else would you add to your 30 years old know what you know now any any other things that that would be important yeah boy lots of things <laughs> so um, let me see if I can, I'll pick a couple that I could probably pick 10. There's so much I didn't know back when I was 30. 
Um, and they and they might sound obvious, but they they weren't obvious at the time. So one thing I've really learned, maybe I'll start with this one. Um, mm -hmm. One thing I've I've really learned is the importance of humility. That uh, there's always so much you don't know. I remember right after like getting out of university, computer science graduate, felt like I had the world by the tail. I knew how to code great stuff. I had done well at school. I had done some cool projects, and I remember this experience of getting into my first job in a a group of about 25 software engineers. And it was a really healthy experience because I, I realized like, I don't know what I'm doing. Like I, yeah, I've learned how to code, but I don't know how to work in a team. I don't know half the things, half the disciplines that this software engineering group do to be successful as a team. I've never heard of before. I, there's so much I don't know. That was my first inkling that there was a lot I didn't know. And of course the old saying is true that the, the more you learn, the more you realize you actually don't know. So I've learned now I'm 56. I think I know more than ever that there's a lot that I don't know, which is humbling, but it's humbling in a good way. Cause when you're humble about that and you know that there's a lot you don't know, you're always learning. You're always looking to learn and you're always open to ideas. You're open to being wrong and to being corrected. And that's just a healthy place to be. So, so being humble, I think is really mm -hmm. crucial for, for 30 year olds. Um, and maybe the other one I'd add, and I could probably think of 10 things, but the other one I would add is um, kind of the counter to what I said a minute ago, about doing what you love. I think it's easy to get confused by that statement, because there's a lot of talk of, of people saying, you know, focus on and do what you love. And, and that's true. You should be passionate about what you do. Um, but it's easy to kind of let that get twisted a bit to, um, you know, maybe doing what's easy for you or doing what you enjoy on the surface. And I think really loving work isn't about it being easy. In fact, it should be really hard. It should at times keep, keep you up at night with the challenge. The loving part is the accomplishment, accomplishing something great. And whether that's building something, whether it's taking a big organization that's got lots of political strife and solving those problems and making it work smoothly, heck, whether it's, you know, uh, you know, being a social worker and helping people in need, whatever it is, it's finding satisfaction in the outcome. That's the part that you should focus on loving versus the actual, you know, being easy or it's fun or what have you. So I think it's easy to kind of, get confused about what kind of loving you should do about the work that you focus on. So I would aim high, I'd aim to really challenge yourself. And even mm. part of challenge is some adversity. I think that's really a good thing. And, and it's all that much more rewarding when you, when you have an outcome that you've been pursuing. And there's an interesting balance, Craig, between uh, like loving what you do and then focusing on just purely the outcome. And what I've heard yeah. a lot of times is, for example, somebody who wants to be a good musician, they generally need to practice five to six hours a day. And some people just feel that it's just so hard, it's a burden. Uh, and yeah. they they know that, oh, I'm not a really good musician. Uh, yeah. Versus some in some other roles, like when you, are, you want to be a basketball player, uh, that's what's required. And I feel like some people are willing to sacrifice the day-to-day -day practice uh, for the outcome, uh, yes. which is I find to be really interesting versus some people do prefer more enjoyment of the process, even though it is still hard and get good outcome. Yeah, that's right. And I think, I think music is a great, a great sort of analogy. I, I ended up learning to play guitar when I was about mm. 12 years old. That's been a big part of my life. I actually thought about making music a career. Uh, and I remember those days from about 12 to 16 when I was in the the rough part of learning the basics of, of notes and chords and time signatures and music theory. 
um, and just having to practice for, I think I never went to four hours a day, but about an hour or two a day. Um, and what, you know, that, while, while that itself wasn't enjoyable, the, the pursuit of becoming good at playing the guitar, like that just made it all, it kind of made it enjoyable because as I was seeing progress, it was fun to see the progress. Um, so there was kind of joy in the process, even though when you look at the parts of practicing, it doesn't look like it's an enjoyable thing. But when you see that you're moving towards a goal that's worthwhile, I, I think that is really enjoyable. And if you can, if you can find that place, mm. I think a lot of things that are on the surface maybe don't look like things you could love. You can actually learn to love. And I think people that master whatever it is, music or some kind of sport or what have you, I think that's what they've, they've found that great sweet spot where they're willing to put in the time and effort and the sweat and the, and the tears, even though they're tears, because they get joy out of the, the progress towards a goal. What have you found when you were practicing music that you realized, I'm not going to be a great musician. I, I'm not going to do that. I'll have to go some, do something else. What were, what were the things that you, that you noticed? Yeah, I, um, I, I'm not sure, not, not that I ever became great per se, but I, I wouldn't say I ever made the conscious decision. It was more, um, you know, again, that kind of 12 to 16 time period. Um, you know, I was doing a variety of things. I was at school. I played sports to an extent. Again, nothing high level, but had a whole bunch of different interests. Um, but when I first had the opportunity, and this was probably at about 15, I was asked at, at the, the music school to start teaching beginner students. Um, so that kind of gave me motivation to, to learn more because I didn't want to be you know, teaching students and not knowing myself. And then at 16, I joined my first band. And so that prompted me to do more, but it was never really kind of uh, for just for whatever reason, never really an aspiration to make it a career. It actually just turned out that a band I was playing with in late high school or early university, we were fairly good and we wrote our own music and we ended up getting offered a record contract. That was, that was the first time we actually then debated, should we make this a career? And we chose not to. So it just it wasn't a conscious decision. It just was never really the thing that I kind of wanted to do. Um, yeah, sometimes I, I wonder what life would have been like had I chose to go that path. Probably very different than where I ended up. Oh, absolutely. 100%. What are some of the fears you had to overcome to get to where you are right now? Because, I mean, you did mention a lot of challenges there. Everybody has them. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So probably the biggest one for me as a leader is uh, I'm, I'm quite introverted. Um, it's interesting. I have three kids and, and two of the three are quite introverted. And one is like incredibly extroverted. I'm like, where did this come from? Because my wife and I are both fairly introverted. And so as a leader, you have to learn. I mean, you just have to spend time with people. You have to communicate. You have to open yourself up and be transparent, have fun with them, do all those, sometimes have tough conversations. And, um, and that didn't come naturally. So I had to work through that. Uh, and I still, there's days where, you know, I have a tough conversation I have to have and I got to, I got to, get prepared for it. It just doesn't come naturally. So that was probably the biggest thing. Um, yeah, other parts came reasonably naturally, but it was the people side of things that I had to really work on. I'd still have to work on. Right. Uh, when you hear, for example, a word successful, somebody successful, who are the people that come to mind? The first, some, somebody, some names that jump out for you? Uh, a real spectrum. So I think of in no particular order, um, certainly, how can you not think of guys like Steve Jobs who've done amazing, amazing things like that? So there's business people that have been, I think, uh, with uh, with tremendous respect in, in terms of what they've achieved. 
the guys at Google as well. So, of course, people like that. Yeah. On the complete other end of the spectrum, and, and, and this may sound very old-fashioned, um, but my, my probably my biggest sort of role model or, or mentor, and I, thought, I think if I could do the things that he did, uh, actually, no, within limits, kind of follow the things he taught is the better way to put it. Uh, he's probably my biggest mentor, and that's Jesus. I, I often mm -hmm. say to people, whether you believe who he said he was or not, just that his teachings of how to work with people, how to care about people, how to have tough conversations, um, like all of that stuff, I think he was pretty amazing. So uh, that's probably the ultimate success mm -hmm. if I could yeah. just follow what he says. Um, so quite a wide spectrum. And then lots of people in between that have you know, quietly right. served others and made a difference to uh, you know, some great sports figures and so on. So I've got lots of folks I admire. Interesting. Uh what do you and this is the question that I gave you as a sample before we started rolling. Yeah. <laughs> what, what do you what do you believe in that other people might find insane? Yeah, um, you know, it might be that and I didn't think of that when I just said it, but it might be what I just said. So I'm very open about the fact that the the, the values and the approaches that Jesus taught, I think, are really, really effective. Mm -hmm. um, I remember actually when uh, when I was interviewing for the job at VersaPay. I had gone through a one-on-one -on -one interviews with several board members and with the recruiter, of course. And then the board sort of met collectively and we had a call and we had a good talk. And then after our talk, at the at the end of the talk, one of them asked me, is there anything we haven't asked you yet that we need to know? And I thought, well, I guess I should I should share that. So I, I shared that. I said, I, I'm actually a, a believer in Jesus' teachings. And I, I try my best. I don't always get it right, but I try and follow that. Mm -hmm. um, and there was this silence. And I, we're on the phone, so I can't see them, but there's this long, it felt like forever silence. I'm sure they're all looking at each other. What do we do with that? And then one of them said, well, that doesn't sound like a bad thing. That was all they could, <laughs> the only response they could give. So I, I realized that's sort of not typical. So that might be the most insane thing. Otherwise, I'm pretty uh, pretty run of the mill. Um, so that, that might be my most insane attribute or, or different than, so atypical attribute, if you will. Yeah, that that you know, yeah, I asked that question. You never know what will jump out. So that is really <laughs> that is fascinating. Are there any quotes that you live by that you really, really take into and like you follow that would jump out? Uh, yeah, put on the spot. I'm not sure I'd quote them correctly, but there's there's several of again back to several of Jesus teachings. Um, I, I love a lot of stuff from John Wooden. You know, the basketball coach. Mm -hmm. um the winningest college ba basketball coach ever love a lot of his stuff mm -hmm. um uh and then there's some different writers uh patrick lencioni i love a lot of his books so we actually work as a, as a leadership team at versipate through a lot of his material um so i wanted to have to quote any of those but but those are kind of my sources for some of my favorite sayings that i try and live by what are some of the books that you have uh, gifted the most over over the years um, yeah, so, uh, probably be a couple of, if I, if I thought about the, the ones I've given away the most or shared the most, it would be a couple, a couple of, uh, Patrick Lencioni's books. So five dysfunctions of a team, I think is a really great book for leadership teams or any team trying to be a high performance team together. So that one I've shared a lot. It's required reading for anybody who reports to me and, and mm -hmm. we pretty well, every time we have an offsite, I sort of bring up the model of the five dysfunctions of a team and I'm sure you know, inside their minds, my, my direct reports are rolling their eyes because like, again, we're going to go over this, but I always kind of go over it. Um, so that one I've shared a lot. Uh, there's another one that he's done called Ideal Team Player. 
mm-hmm. and a model that kind of is distilled right down to being hungry, humble, and smart. I've shared that one a lot as well. Um, so those might be my two sort of go-tos. And it's, it's a lot about um, both individual and team dynamic, because I think if you can get that right, you can accomplish a lot. Right. Oh, 100%. Uh, this is a, an interesting question. I'm very, very curious what you're going to say, because and this is especially interesting in the context of this huge vision for VersaPay and the market opportunity. And you could also interpret it as your for your personal life as well. What might you do to accomplish your 10-year-old goal in the next six months if you had a gun to your head? <laughs> That's good. Um yeah, I, I do think that that kind of pressure, that kind of crisis can can really clarify things. Um, and, and in some ways, we actually have just gone through an exercise like that. We had an offsite. We have every quarter we had an offsite with the team. And I had my, my team offsite two weeks ago. And I said to the group, you know, as we've built our plans and checked in and adjusted our plans every quarter, we've always done that in the in the context of some pretty serious capital constraints. So uh, this is in some ways a little bit the reverse of a gun to your head. But I said to my team, if we take those capital constraints away, um, which, you know, theoretically, they're somewhat going away. What are the what are the the biggest things, the most important things we should do right now to get off on a different trajectory? As we talked that over, actually came up with too many things, but we boiled Mm -hmm. it down to a handful of things, which uh, which were, were pretty exciting. We've got some partnerships that were putting some effort in, but there's a whole lot more we could do. Uh, one example of those is we have this terrific partnership with MasterCard. Of course, huge, big organization. We're a relatively small organization, and so we're doing what we can, but there's so much more we could we could do. And through MasterCard, work with up to 150 of the largest banks in the world, and then yeah. through them, of course, get to thousands and thousands and thousands of companies. So we've got some great opportunities like that that um, – not so much a gun to our head, although there might be a preferable gun to our head. You know, under new ownership, they're going to be in a hurry to see progress. Uh, but there's some big, big opportunities that, that we're going to pursue as we're able to do that now. And I've heard that uh, the partnership is going to be a big part for your growth and for the source of revenue beyond 2021. I believe you actually showed that chart a while ago yes. when you were doing a presentation. Yes. Well, yeah. How have you, and, and this is interesting because you obviously do like ask questions of how do you lift constraints and, and think in a different way to see like are there any other approaches available? How have you learned to ask better questions or what helped you to learn the better question? Yeah. You know, it's, and I don't always say it out loud, but what I, what I think in my head over and over and over is why really why not just surface level why is that the case but really why i don't so just always challenging you know have gotten to the heart of the matter the the root of why maybe this customer thinks they need this or why this partner wants to do that or why a colleague that i'm working with has this point of view mm-hmm. and i often don't you know like the like the young child just keep saying why 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 but that translates into uh different questions i often find it disarming actually as well to start the question with can you help me understand because i'm I'm not quite fully understanding you yet but then lead that into a a question that kind of just helps them open up a little bit more you know i I often think and i say to my team that language is so imperfect we miss so much of what we mean with each other as we talk so it's important to keep delving down and delving down and delving down until we get to the heart of the matter 
Um, so I think that's helped. But funny you should ask that question because that's something I work on. Is I, I I'm always trying to get better at asking questions because um, I think we all have been we can have the natural ten- tendency to assume things or to jump to a conclusion versus really actually ensuring that we've got to the heart of the matter. And I know I do that, so I'm, I'm always working trying to get better at that. Are there any um, other skills that you are trying to improve, Craig? Anything that you're focusing on right now? Uh, yes. So, um, you know, in some ways, being a leader is is it's a little bit like parenting in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and then, of course, as your organization grows, you're leading leaders. Um, and so there's a lot to think about. And what I find sometimes is, um, you know, I'm thinking about the organization's goals. I'm thinking about the team. There's times when I'm not thinking enough about the individuals on my team. Um, reading a good book, which will probably be one of my go-tos in terms of sharing, uh, it's called Radical Candor. You may have run across mm-hmm. it. And uh, um, the writer's sort of mantra is that as a leader, you should uh, care deeply and challenge directly. So the Radical Candor is you got to have the tough conversations, but it's got to be rooted in really caring personally for the person, for the individual. Um, and so that's something it's challenged me to, to work on that, to think about my direct reports and other people in the company as well, about them and their families and and just caring more about them as people. So which I'm still getting my mind around because when there's a lot to do, it's like, how do I find the brain cells to do that? Yeah. But I'm, I'm trying to work on that now. Are you um, a fan of... Um like figuring out a solution to, to a problem where you, where you, when you're faced with a big problem, are you a fan of like, let me figure this out? Or your first thing will be, oh, let me ask people who already done that, somebody who already did that, and let me reach out to them first to, to understand how they did that. Yeah, kind of a combination. Um, a lot of my reaching out to solve problems is actually through a lot of reading. I read a lot of books. I find that very helpful. Um, where I've got, so I've got some some colleagues and mentors in other companies where I know they've gone through similar things. So I'll certainly reach out to them. And then through the team here, um, you know, I, I'm definitely always thinking about how to solve a problem, but I love to involve a group and get them thinking about it as well and collaborate on it and debate it and and uh, and even debate it very, very vigorously. So one of the parts of the Patrick Lencioni model is healthy conflict, like really arguing and hammering things out for the good of getting to the right answer. So I'm a big fan of that as well. So kind of a bit of a combination right. of those things. Right. Craig, talk to me a little bit about your routines. I do like to focus on that as well on the show. What does your morning routine look like? What do you do when you wake up? Are there any sequence of steps that you follow to like to hit the high performance, to be focused and, and to, you know, just to get everything organized? Yeah, yeah. Um, there, there definitely are. So I'm a morning person. I'm not like a four in the morning person, but I'm, I'm fairly early in the morning, kind of 6am. I usually take some time always, actually, I shouldn't say usually always take some time in the morning, um, just to have some quiet centering time to think about what's important. Um, I will often read the words of Jesus as an example to just remind myself about, um, you know, my own values and, and how I want to behave and get problems in perspective. And I think perspective is so crucial because sometimes mm-hmm. little things can become big things. And when you step back and get the right perspective, it's like, oh, yeah, this, we don't need to be too fussed about this. I, I take time in the morning to kind of get centered. Um, and then once I so I, I typically, if I'm not traveling, I'll get into the office before everybody else. So a lot of the 
stuff that I just need to get done on my own. I'll often do that before the day kind of starts with other people because then my time is really not my own. I spend a lot of my time with other people. Um, I try and make those interactions as effective as possible by you know, having an agenda, having a list of things that we need to discuss. Why are we spending this time together? Uh, and when I'm not with other people, so when I'm sitting at my desk, uh, I actually remember that when I first joined at Versify, one of my direct reports about two weeks in, she said to me, you're not very good with email. And I said, actually, I would beg to differ. I think I am good with email. I turn off all the notifications. I don't let myself be interrupt driven, kind of. I turn all of that off and focus, but I'll spend chunks of time on email and texts and Slack. We use Slack as well, but I'm not looking all the time and I don't let those things interrupt me. So I try and sort of focus on what I'm doing. And then I'm a big fan of to-do lists. So every morning as part mm -hmm. of my quiet time, I set kind of my priorities for the day. And some of those might be as simple as talk to so-and-so about something that I heard yesterday that I want to make sure we clarify today, or it might be a task, or it might be a, an important meeting, some notes on an important meeting. But then I sort of keep going back to that throughout the day to make sure that I'm, I'm not forgetting what I thought was important at the start of the day. Do you, um, um, do you work out in the morning or like journaling? Do you do like journal meditation, working out before you get to the office or you, you don't do that in the morning? I, I do. I, uh, I do those things at the start of the day. Um, uh, the workout happens two to three times a week. It, I like to make it three. I wish it was always three, but it was, it's often two times a week. So start with the quiet time, the planning, the day, the getting centered, the essentially meditation, if you will. Don't always call it that, but it's very much like that. Then a couple of times a week workout and then into the office and then then the starting gun goes off and, and then the day is, is full-fledged. And I do like to wrap up the day um, with some, I wouldn't call it meditation, but just sort of thinking through uh, how did things go compared to the to-do list? What happens that I need to follow up with tomorrow? What's the rest of the week looking like? That's sort of just a little bit of sort of checking in myself to say, how did that go? What needs to happen tomorrow? Are you doing any particular things in the evening or do you have evenings that are a little bit less planned? Yeah, it, I, I always try and, uh, so I've got two kids that are grown and one that's 12. Same wife, I always like to say, we just had a big gap in between them. And so right. over the over many years, we've had young kids in the house. And so I try to you know, get home by about seven and have the next two, two and a half hours is family time. Um, and then I'll go back into my study and, and work for kind of an hour to two hours, sometimes longer if needed. Um, and that's partly the wrapping up the day. It's partly dealing with tasks that didn't get done that might be pressing or something that came up that day that just needs to get dealt with. Um, and sometimes it's just sort of thinking ahead. But I do like to have that time kind of at the end of the day. But the family time, I, I really try and protect because um, mm. kids grow up so fast. Oh, totally. And, what do you, and when you start your day, Craig, do you, after you went through the journaling, after you thought through what are you going to be accomplishing during the day, you're, you went through the to-do list, do you respond to email straight away or you get something done first and then you go into the email and Slack and, and check them? Yeah, good question. So um, I will typically scan email. So I'm, 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 while I'm a big believer of touching things only once, I just find with email, I have to scan it quickly. So I've got email set up that I can see a two line preview of email. And if I see something that really demands immediate attention, I'll scan it and deal with those things. Otherwise, they're set aside till I get some tasks done. But, you know, I, I do make time intentionally, whether it's first thing in the morning or slots in between meetings through the day, to spend 15, 20 minutes to, to deal with emails. Um, and then my uh, my direct reports have kind of learned that 
often if I don't deal with an email and within two or three days of receiving it, it's probably going to be below the fold and they better follow up with me because those are the wasteland that just, they weren't important enough to get dealt with. 100%. What have you become uh, or what have you become better at saying no to over the years? You, you, you don't have, like everybody has a limited time. You, you prioritize your family time, your work time, the time with yourself. Uh, what are some of the areas that you became better over the years to ignore or to say not interested or something or similar things. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> Probably the biggest thing is that that kind of interruption. So, you know, while I'm, you know, there's a balance between being humble and needing to learn, but also um, not letting yourself get into such an interrupt driven mode that you're not getting anything done. So I'm, I'm fairly rigorous about kind of setting my time using blocks, to allow interruption, but then otherwise I just say no to interruption. And that even includes outside parties coming in to whether it's to have a, a great conversation like this or, or mm. you know, whatever it might be. Mm. Um, I've gotten pretty good at saying no or not now, or it, I'm open to this, but it'll need to be scheduled well in advance where I can sort of fit it into the things that I've prioritized. Um, and that was not always easy to do. I, I used to probably you know, aim to please too much. And it was hard to say no. So once upon a time, when I mentioned that direct report, who said to me, you're not very good with email. Once upon a time, I would have said, Oh, I got to change how I handle email, where mm -hmm. I was actually very comfortable saying, No, I would actually say I'm quite good at handling email. I just am logical about when I do it. So I've got to, I'll just stop that there. Yeah, no worries. There we go. Yeah, yeah. no, that, that makes sense. Um, Craig, where's everybody can find you online? Um, yeah, I'm actually not very good at that either. So, um, as an organization, uh, VersaPay is on, you know, tweets regulated is on LinkedIn and so on. It's actually the organization sometimes under my account, but you can certainly find out what we're doing as a company. A little bit about me tucked in there, but more as VersaPay on our, uh, on our LinkedIn account and on Twitter, even on Instagram as well. Uh, there's not too much about me there because it's actually the company that's our marketing group that's doing most of that. I'll also add, um, and this is just for the show notes, we'll add it uh, below the episode. And I will link your LinkedIn profile in case people want to follow up, ask questions to you directly. Um, are there any um, parting thoughts that you have, anything that you'd like to, to say to listeners, anything maybe we I didn't ask you? Uh, great questions, by the way. This has been fun to, to talk about. So, so what else would I say? Um, I'd probably come back to maybe the, I think I said this in terms of, you know, advice for 30 year olds, um, or maybe it was the, you know, what, what's a question that I don't get asked enough. And that is, yeah. you know, I'd really encourage people to think about, uh, kind of what success looks like for them, or in other words, kind of what's truly important. Um, I concluded a long time ago that, uh, it wasn't about money. It wasn't about having a lot of nice things. Not that that's a bad thing at all. It's nice to have those things, but, um, Pursuing all of that stuff is, is, is kind of an appetite, right? The more you pursue that, the more you're going to want. Um, so find other things, more meaningful things to pursue as, as your measure of success and what's important. Um, I, I really think that's a, a key to being happy and healthy and making a difference and feeling good about your contribution to the to your community and the world. So that might be the, the parting comment I would make is to, to really think carefully about what's important, what, what is success for you and then to pursue that success wholeheartedly. Are there any tools or questions that you would recommend for people to consider to be able to better arrive at an answer? 
Um, anything that you found that worked for you, for example, maybe trying a certain things uh, or maybe experimenting a little bit more in, in the areas that, that, that might look ridiculous uh, on paper. Uh, anything that you found that, that is interesting? Um, not so much tools per se, lots and lots of good books. Um, but at the end of the day, really kind of a philosophy that people are what matter. Um, other stuff comes and goes and it's, it's really about people. Um, and so learning to kind of value people and, um, uh, you know, think less about yourself and think more about others, which is a lifelong journey that I'm still figuring right. out. But it's that kind of philosophy, I think, is what really makes a difference. And it applies to, you know, whether you're running an entire business or running a team within a business or on a sports team or really whatever you do. Um, I think if you if you adopt that philosophy and then define success related to that, I think it can be really impactful for yourself and for others as well. Well, Craig, it was a lot of fun. Thank you for thank you for sharing all of this. It's uh, it's great to have you as a guest. Well, it's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for asking me. Thank you guys for listening. I hope you did enjoy the conversation with Craig. I totally did uh, myself. And if you did, yeah, it would really mean a lot if you would go on Apple Podcasts and leave a quick review, just a couple of your thoughts on the whole show and some of the experiences that you had, that would mean a lot. I wanted to quickly share what am I doing next is I want to start using my email list and I don't think I was really focused on that before but I really would like to have a little bit more interaction with you and hear from you directly so I will have an email form on my website uh, for the two for the episode number 51 it's going to be live and I will share it with you as well in the show notes so you can go and subscribe you'll be able to hear from me on the topics of mindset, uh, thought leaders, and just all about my podcast and the future episodes, which I think you will find pretty interesting. And some of the practical things that, like Tim Ferriss style that you could apply for yourself to have a better performance, better career, and happier life. On this note, I will see you guys in the next episode. Thank you for listening.